So good evening and uh, welcome everybody. Uh, my name is uh, Delia Baldassari and I'm an assistant professor here in sociology. On uh, behalf of the public lecture committee and of a large Princeton community, I'm honored and delighted to welcome President and Professor Romano Prodi, which uh, will deliver the Walter E. Edge Lecture. The Edge Lecture Fund was uh, founded in 1957 in memory of uh, Walter E. Edge, class of 1946. Edge served uh, twice as governor of New Jersey and also as United States Senator and Ambassador to France. The lectureship is supported by a bequest from his estate assigned to the university by his family as a means of bringing to Princeton eminent statesmen from abroad as well as leaders in American public life. Previous Walter Yedge lecturers include uh, George Kennan, John Kenneth Goldbright, Edward Heath, Valérie Giscard d'Estaing, Elie Wiesel, Robert Rubin, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So, pretty good company. Um, our speaker, Professor and President Romano Prodi, will be, will be introduced by Professor Andrew Moravchik. Andrew Moravchik is a professor of politics and international affairs and director of the European Union program at the Woodrow Wilson School. He has authored over 100 academic publications on Re European integration, transatlantic relations, international organization, and global human rights. His book, The Choice for Europe, is generally considered the most important work on the history of the European Union. And actually, as an undergrad, I had to read it. In addition to his prolific work as an academic, opinionist, and policy advisor, I was delighted to discover that Professor Moravchik is also an established authority for his writing on opera and classical music, a true European intellectual. I'm now done with uh, these formalities, and I look forward to an exciting evening with all of you. Thanks. It's a great, great pleasure and an honor uh, to welcome one of Europe's great politicians and thinkers here uh, to address us on the problems uh, of European integration. Uh, Romano Prodi began as one of us uh, as a scholar. Uh, he was a professor at the University of Bologna, a university that he reminded us at dinner is considerably older than Princeton University. Uh, he was professor of economics, but economics in the broader sense. Uh, economics combined with law and political science, uh, a specialist in competition policy and small and medium enterprises in industrial policy. And he took that into the policy world, uh, working in uh, reconstruction and industrial policy in Italy entering into politics in the 1970s, but remaining academically active at the same time. He held positions at Stanford, at Harvard, uh, elsewhere. Um, he entered into government at the top uh, of the government in Italy as prime minister or president of the council, as it's known there, uh, two times 
uh, twice defeating uh, Berlusconi at the head of a coalition, first at the head of the Olive Branch Coalition in the 1990s, holding office from 1996 to 1998, uh, and then again uh, from 2006 to 2008 uh, at the head of the Unita Coalition. Uh, quite an achievement in the rough-and-tumble wor world of Italian politics, both times holding together uh, a coalition uh, for two years or a little bit more um, in a very difficult, under very difficult and trying circumstances. In between those experiences in domestic politics, he went to Brussels and became one of the very few people who's been president of the European Commission one of the handful top positions uh, in the European Union, uh, and one of the few positions where one can really take a leadership role pushing issues forward. And among the decisive issues uh, that Romano Prodi pushed forward uh, was the entry of 10 new countries into Europe in the enlargement in 2004, the establishment of the euro in 11 countries uh, a few years previously, um, and a number of other issues in the early 2000s. We often think because of the constitutional debates in Europe during that period uh, of recent years of being a period of failure um, in Europe, but in fact, um, much got done in that period and much of it was due to Romano Prodi's um, uh, efforts. Uh, after his reti second retirement from Italian politics, and he was no longer seen, as many people saw him at the time, bicycling uh, across the uh, television screens of Italy, something that became something of a symbol uh, of, of him. Uh, he's been active on the broader global uh, and uh, political and scholarly scene. Um, in 2008, United Nations Secretary uh, Ban Ki-moon selected him as president of the African Union peacekeeping effort. And then later that year, he was named professor at large at Brown University, so he spends a couple of months there, during which time he's now here to address us uh, in this lecture. Uh, despite the fact that he spent quite a bit of time as a researcher and at major American universities, this is his first trip to Princeton. So I'd like you to help me welcome um, a great Italian, great European, uh, a great scholar, Romano Prodi. Good evening, and I have to stay close to the microphone because otherwise you don't listen. I have a low voice. No, I am really very happy to be here in Princeton. Very happy, not only because this is the first time I'm here and been taken by the beauty of the campus but also because I have the occasion to talk uh, to you about Europe in a delicate moment of uh, the development of European institutions and also in a day in which uh, the new leaders of the European Union have been appointed a few hours ago and 
that uh, could be a change in our perspective. So uh, I want to start uh, this conversation telling you what happened to me a few uh, days ago. I was in a meeting in uh, Madrid and uh, in the debate uh, one of my interlocutors asked me abruptly uh, but Europe is a laboratory or is a museum? And uh, you know this question brings uh, us just in front of the problem whether Europe is looking to the past or is looking to the future. Because if we look at European Union history, we found that this has been the most innovative and most important political laboratory of all the 20th century. It never happened. I, I know it, uh, but uh, you know, uh, uh, the mic. This, this is no, this is not working. You know, this is not easy to stay close to that. But I shall try anyway. Is better. Uh, if you look at European history in the 20th century, certainly Europe has been uh, the most important political laboratory in the world. Uh, from the institutional point of view, the most important innovation came and were born in Europe. Uh, certainly, since the beginning, the idea of Europe was a great innovation. When you think that after the war, after the bloody Second World War, in which uh, you have dozens of millions of dead, uh, the idea of three leaders, three European leaders, uh, to put together the instrument of the war, coal and steel, and to start from this idea to bring peace in the world, to prevent any war, and you know, this was already a fantastic innovation. Even if, look, when I talk to the young people about that, when I tell them that Europe has brought peace in the world after, let's say, centuries and centuries in which always there were war in Europe, nobody cares about that. Now, peace is given for granted. And the fact that Europe has brought peace does not make any excitement to the new generation. But uh, this was the great first achievement, to bring peace in a continent that was always full of hate, of dead, of casualties. And uh, uh, this was done looking at the future, not looking at the past. Then, you know, from that, there were other innovation in the European laboratory. 
the second step was mainly economic, to create a common market. And uh, this was the second step that changed the face of Europe, because creating this big market, we, give, we are given the possibility also to countries like Italy, they were out of the great economic development to start a new phase of their history. But this was accompanied by new institutions, it was not only a common market. The second phase was to try to have a political unity. So we had a European sort of government called the Commission, a Parliament, and uh, the European Council that was, let's say, the aggregation of the national states that uh, were members of the European Union. And uh, uh, they, they started to produce uh, a great amount of uh, set of legislation that was called, uh, with the European jargon, la communautaire, in different fields, from justice to competition, from environment to free circulation of goods and people. So uh, uh, the <coughs> transformation uh, of the institutional transformation was uh, really a deep change from the national Westphalian state to some sort of new concept of nationality. This was the start of the change, but uh, also from the territorial point of view uh, was an enormous change in progress. European Union started with six countries, Germany, France, Italy, Belgium, Holland, and Luxembourg. In 1973, Denmark, United Kingdom, and Ireland came in. In 81, Greece. In 86, Spain and Portugal. In 95, Austria, Sweden, and Finland. And then the great enlargement of 2004, in which Cyprus, Malta, Estonia, Let Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, Czech Republic, Slovakia, Slovenia, and Hungary entered. And in 2007, Romania and Bulgaria. So, a complete change uh, in which uh, uh, the last enlargement, the enlargement of 2004 and 2007, had a very peculiar political uh, characteristic. There were eight and then two additional members of the former Soviet Union or of the Warsaw Pact that entered in one day in the European Union. The 1st of May of 2004, there was this enormous change with new, with 80 million of new Europeans uh, with a, a real change of the map of Europe and also with a decision that was 
uh, in some way surprising many people and also many politicians. As a matter of fact, we were asked to start the examination of uh, five new member counties in 10 years, and we did 10 new member counties in five years plus Romania and Bulgaria two years later. Why? Because it was clear that uh, the political window was open in that moment. And if it should have not filled the empty space, certainly we should have had terrible consequences in the, uh, European political history. Think deeply what should have happened now uh, with the tension between Russia and uh, uh, the European states if Poland or uh, the other new members would have not been parts of the European Union. Uh, imagine the instability of Europe without the uh, quick action of enlargement. Uh, and it was, um, it was uh, not only a change of the geopolitics of Europe, but it was something deeper, you know. It was, uh, I don't want to be polemic, you know, but uh, it was the really, really the only case of export of democracy in the world. Why export of democracy? Because it was not uh, done through force or through menace, but it was just an offer that uh, the new member countries accepted and wanted. And it was uh, a, a fantastic exercise in terms of, uh, uh, of uh, political innovation. We divided the acquis communautaire, let's say the European legislation, in 31 different chapters. Each chapter was agriculture, free circulation of goods, justice, energy, taxation, environment, all the legislation discussed chapter by chapter, one by one, with the potential new members. They changed the legislation, they put in front of the parliament, the new legislation came, discussed with the commission, other changes were done, working day and night, to adapt the institutional structure to the new reality. And I repeat, I have never found in history any uh, of this type of experiment. I never find uh, the negotiations going uh, so deeply and so clearly inside the reality of, of the country. And it was also emotional, you know, because it's uh, uh, there was a genuine uh, desire, a, a, a will to become members of the European Union after so many years of dictatorship, of, uh, you know, exclusion from the world community. I, I do remember, you know, it's, uh, I was uh, in the beginning of the negotiation with Romania very poor country with all the Ceausescu problems, you know, you remember history, you know, and uh, 
discussing the reason, the foundation of Europe, and all the political parties made speech in favor of uh, Europe, you know. Then uh, a man went up and uh, he defined himself a member of the non-Hungarian minority of the Romanian parliament. Can you the com listen to the complexity of Europe? The complexity of Europe. And he, ma he made a fantastic speech of, uh, about Europe peace development. You know, then in the end I asked, you know, why you are so warm for entering into Europe? And he told simply, look, uh, my grandfather was killed because member of a minority. My father was expelled because member of a minority. And I want to enter into Europe because Europe is a is a union of minorities. The best definition that I tried to adopt for the European Union was given me in the Romanian by a member of the Hungarian, non-Hungarian minority of the Romanian Parliament. You know, because this is this is the real spirit of Europe. You know that we have to preserve the reason why Europe was born to protect all the European citizens. Uh, against the, you know, the oppression of the majority, and uh, uh, this is the reason why we had the expansion of uh, Europe, and so many countries wanted to enter because the rules, the European rules, uh, in which you have one commissioner per country, small or or big, you know, uh, Malta with 300,000 inhabitants as one commission, Germany with almost 80 million inhabitants as one commissioner. And, you know, uh, uh, you have a parliament in which you have the proportion, but in which the small countries have more than the proportion of their member of, of, of the parliament, in which you, uh, you have not only development, this I want to stress this because uh, the biggest achievement in Europe has been that the new member states, the new poor member states, I am not talking about the United Kingdom, of course, but of Spain, Portugal, Greece, and then the East European country, all, all have grown up uh, more than the average after the interest in the Union, because of solidarity, because of a policy of a cohesion policy, we call it regional policy, helping the, 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 the most poor regions in Europe. So we had a policy of solidarity that worked well, worked well. Of course, you have complaints, but the distance between the wealthiest countries and the poorest countries is substantially decrease it after any operation of enlargement. And this is against uh, uh, economic theory, you know, in which when you have a, a development of uh, a, an organization, you know, the core is better off than the periphery of the system. But uh, really, uh, you had regional policy, uh, support of backward areas, 
and a help uh, on the poorest region and the result has been uh, more uh, equality. But you know, uh, this was the expansion of the continent, but uh, then after this enlargement, we are now living in a period in which uh, uh, there is uh, some sort of uh, change in the European spirit, you know. Uh, uh, in, the, in our plan, it was written also that the enlargement needed to go immediately or very soon in the direction of uh, the former Yugoslavian countries. Uh, Croatia is ready since many years. You know, the, all the chapters uh, in which we divided uh, our legislation uh, are met by Croatians, you know, uh, but uh, in this moment, in the last years, Europe uh, was taken by fear, was taken by a problem of, uh, of division, was taken by, by uh, the difficult perspective for the future. And uh, mm, so we have a period of, uh, let's say, uh, of uh, uh, less faith, less confidence in the future development of the continent. This reflects, when you look at the enlargement, also uh, with the famous and important Turkish case. Uh, there was a commitment uh, to enlarge uh, Europe also, to start negotiation also with Turkey. Uh, but uh, step by step, uh, the European public opinion changed. Uh, the governments that engaged themselves to open up to Turkey uh, requested an internal referendum in order to implement this decision. The, it, the public opinion in Europe was moving against uh, this enlargement, and now we are in a terribly difficult situation in which there are commitments vis-a-vis -vis Turkey, but uh, with the referendum, the, with the fact that we need a popular referendum, is almost impossible that uh, this commitment uh, is delivered, that, that can be... Uh, uh, and then, so we have also from this point of view uh, a, a, a real stop to the to the uh, to the enlargement of the union and uh, the problem of enlargement where are the borders of europe is an unsolved problem i tried three times i asked three times to the european parliament to open a debate where are the borders of europe and it was absolutely impossible because this is one of the most delicate problems there still is a question mark for the future that uh, I don't think will be solved in the, in the near future. To avoid, you know, this clash and to prepare, you know, some sort of uh, better understanding of the problem, the Commission proposed 
a new idea uh, to create the so-called ring of friends. Let's say all the countries in the border of Europe, from Belarusia to Ukraine uh, to, 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 to Moldova, but also Georgia, if it is not on the border, and Armenia, Israel, Syria, uh, Egypt, Morocco, all these countries, to prepare from them an institution called the Ring of Friends, in which they can share with the Union everything but, but not the institution, not be member of the Parliament, not be member of the Commission, but to share the trade policy, cultural policy, agricultural policy, all the chapters of the European rules, but not being members of the Parliament of the... And, you know, I hope that in the future this will be possible, you know, if a country wants uh, uh, to start to have around Europe this area of peace and cooperation. But uh, looking at the laboratory, uh, the most innovative change of the modern state certainly has been the euro. As you know, the currency and the army are the two pillars of the modern state. And uh, to put together the currency, uh, it was really something that it was absolutely unexpected, absolutely unexpected. And it was just something that uh, many people thought it was impossible. And why was it? You know, because uh, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, uh, many European countries were against the German unification. Uh, in these days, there were a rediscovering of the archives in which you read how Mrs. Thatcher and Mitterrand, they were strongly against the German unification. And uh, even in Italy, there were positions against it. And uh, so, uh, Helmut Kohl, the German Chancellor, he understood that uh, he needed to demonstrate that the new Germany, so big compared to other European states, was not the old Germany. And so I do remember how many times he told me, I want to demonstrate that we shall not have a, Ger a, a German Europe, but a a European Germany, that we should be, and so I shall give up to the Deutsche Mark, that is the stronghold of my country, to adopt together with the others a new currency. And it was really something that I do remember that when the Chinese Prime Minister, Chinese President, we had the bilateral meeting between, between the European Commission and the Chinese government, they were absolutely taken by the idea of the euro. They asked me, but really, you will have a currency, you will have a paper with your currency. Really, the Deutsche Mark and the French franc will disappear. The second meaning, really, that we can keep it in our reserves. I say, yes, of course, you know. Then the euro came and 
somebody of you will certainly remember that the euro went down in the first year, you know, collapsed. So when I went back for the next meeting, he was, you know, I was a little afraid. And the Chinese president told me, look, you have given me a very bad advice, but I shall go on buying euros for two reasons. One political reason and one economic reason. The economic reason is that the euro will go up, and he was right, too much went up, you know. But the second reason is that I want to live in a world in which there is not only one lord. And so to have the euro close to the dollar, side by side with the dollar for China is a guarantee. And meditate how the world has changed. Seven years after that is now, the Chinese don't anymore talk about euro and dollars. They talk about the idea of new currency in which you have euro, dollar, renminbi, and others, you know. And in very few years, the perception of the world has completely changed. And I think that we have also, we have to meditate to, to this, to this, uh, to this event. But, so in the end of this, of this uh, experiment, let's say Europe now is uh, an entity with 496 million people, number one in the world in terms of GNP, more than United States, more than any other part of the world, not in terms of individual GNP, of individual income, but in terms of total income. Uh, the biggest exporter in the world, with uh, you know uh, some sort of uh, balanced discipline, uh, but uh, in political terms, Europe is not an actor; is a spectator, and this is really the contradiction of the situation that we have in theory the potentials of a world leader in real terms only as spectators in the political life of the world. Wherever I go from Middle East, uh, especially in the Middle East, you know, in Palestine, in Israel, in uh, the other areas uh, of the world, uh, everybody asks me, why you don't take political decisions? You are the biggest trader with us, you are the biggest investor, and you don't take any decision, and you don't participate to the decisions that, that are concerning us. And the same situation is in the economy. We, are, as I told you, we are the biggest economic entity in the world. We have a common currency, but we have not a common economic policy. We have not a common taxation. We, and, you know, this as consequence, you know, take the last 
crisis. The crisis uh, started uh, by the United States, but the biggest consequence were in Europe, you know. The long-lasting consequence in terms of uh, decrease of income are in many European countries for a simple reason. When the crisis started, the American president decided to inject in the American economy $800 billion. I don't know if are too many or too few, but the decision was taken. The Chinese president decided to put in the economy $585 billion, and they did it. The European countries, the, politi the different policy were different country by country. The British government decided to inject a lot of uh, uh, money to save banks in the system. France mainly to reinforce the French industry. Germany and Italy, they preferred the policy of almost non-intervention. And, you know, each country has taken different decision. So, in this situation, in this situation, uh, it becomes much difficult to tell you that it's a European policy, European decision-making center. So the giant is the giant made of many dwarf, dwarfs one upon the other one, not a giant with strength and muscles as the giant must have. Uh, if you take foreign policy, in the recent history, uh, think to Iraqi war, half the European countries were in favor and half against. And I tell you that this was one of the most uh, tragic moments of the European policy. The dispute we had among us, they were unbelievable, really unbelievable. So deep, so tough, and there was no possibility of a European influence in this decision that has been so important for all of us. And uh, the same I can tell you on the problems of financial governance in the last G20, the position of the European countries were different among them. So, uh, what to go back to become a laboratory and on a simple museum, what we have to do? We have in front of us very simple decisions uh, to have and to uh, build up again a stronger union. Uh, first of all, I have listed all the achievements, but uh, I have to be very honest that uh, in one important mission we I don't say failed, but almost failed. They say uh, the difficult process of uh, having a new constitution. We started with this project of a strong constitution. 
it was impossible to have an agreement because of the difference in the idea of the future supranational uh, powers. Then we had a compromise. The compromise was uh, blocked by the French and the Dutch referendum. Then we had another compromise that was the Lisbon Treaty. The compromise was blocked by the Irish referendum. A country of four million people blocked it. But this is democracy. These are the rule of Europe that must be changed, but these are the existing rules. And so they block it, uh, uh, you know, the, the change of uh, 500 million people. Then we had another referendum in, in, in Ireland, and then we had the Lisbon Treaty approved. And today, the new president of the Union was appointed, and the new let's call Minister of Foreign Affairs of the Union, was appointed. But uh, the Lisbon Treaty does not change, uh, uh, yes, some innovation, you know, uh, the new President and the new uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs, but the powers of both of them are, well, uh, very, very, or let's say are more ceremonial than substance uh, because and this is the point this is the point all the decisions the main decision in Europe must be still taken at unanimity and so even a small country can block everything and, you know, unanimity is a tragedy because uh, when you exercise the veto right, you are a giant, even if you are a dwarf. Imagine a prime minister of a country like of 300,000 people uh, going back. I blocked Europe, you know, it's, a, it's a, some sort of triumph, you know. Uh, I defended the interest of the of our country and so uh, this is not democracy with the unanimity you cannot run anything you cannot uh, uh, run even a football club or nothing you know and uh, this is this is the main problem because uh, it is a rule that is absolutely I don't say impossible but very 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 difficult, very difficult to change. And the uh, second problem is that uh, the Europeans have different voice in all the international bodies. Uh, in the Security Council, you have France and the UK, uh, in WTO, all the European countries have a different uh, uh, share, a quota of IMF, and uh, so um, they don't have any influence. And in the only body in which uh, the Europeans vote together, the WTO, Europe has a lot of importance.
because uh, simply they vote they vote together and so I think that if we want to restart our laboratory first of all we must uh, arrive to the end of unanimity second we must uh, have a substantial budget nobody knows that the budget of European Union is only 1% of the European GDP 1% is uh, nothing uh, and with one per this 1% uh, you have uh, to cover the expenses of agriculture policy of bureaucracy of uh, all the mm, representation of the European Union abroad uh, everything with 1% of the GDP and when I proposed it to pass from 1% to 1.14% there was a reaction of the most part of the member state and the budget has been kept at the level of 1% and with this limit clearly you can't play an autonomous role in world policy. Third condition, we must have an exit clause. Let's say in the European Union, you must have a door to come in, but also a door to get out. If you don't accept uh, you know, the main changes, uh, for example, the Irish referendum that I repeat, uh, we were obliged to respect because these are the rules but it was an absurdity because voting yes okay you approved the Lisbon Treaty voting no nothing happened simply the treaty could not be approved but the country remained as before you know, member of the Union with the same prerogative, blocking all the others, but without any consequence. If you put the question, look, we, there is in front of you the perspective of a big change. You can decide to stay in or to get out. The decision is in this case very, very, very different. And fourth, uh, as I, I, I hinted before, a common representation in the international, in the international bodies. Because, uh, uh, I mean, IMF, World Bank, and so on. I know that this is absolutely utopian. That uh, is something that will not be approved in the present moment, but. Uh, I do understand that uh, our American friends uh, are really worried or uh, fed up when uh, the European countries vote in a different way in these international bodies or have a different position. So how can this is uh, the opinion of many American politicians, how can we have a common position, 
how can you have a policy vis-a-vis Europe if there is not a common will on the European side? And the last consequence, the last change that we must have is uh, to create, in many cases, a multi-speed Europe. Let's say, if a number of countries want to do something more together, they must have the possibility to do it, as it happened with the Euro. Not all the European countries are members of the Euro. I, I, I recall you that in the beginning we were 11 countries, now there are 16 countries that are members of the Euro. And uh, this is a methodology that we must, you, we must adopt in the future to do something more together leaving the door open to others. Clearly, if you do something in a small number of countries and then you put, you keep the other nations out, this is anti-European. But if you want to do something more, you must be free to do it. You know, because then the others, if they want, if they want, uh, uh, will, will follow, you know. And this is indispensable to be a credible a credible partner for the United States. I want to spend only one minute in the, f in the end of this of this of this uh, uh, of this uh, conversation telling that uh, I do think that uh, in this new multipolar and global world that is we, are, we live in the moment of uncertainty because the new leaders think to the BRICS, thinks mainly to China and India, think to the new events that happen in the world. We are in front of the moment of uncertainty. And I am absolutely, absolutely convinced that uh, you can't have a reference point if you have not a strong link between United States and Europe. I think that any choice that U.S. will do concerning China, concerning Brazil, concerning Russia, concerning India, is not contradictory uh, with the fact that will be absolutely vital and positive to have a link with a continent that is more similar in values, more similar in democracy, more similar in tradition, and you know, uh, and so that this is a, a, a strong point that I have in my mind. But uh, clearly, it's not easy, also because on the United States side, there is uh, still the old question that Kissinger made many, many few decades ago. Uh, if I have to call, give me the telephone number of Europe. If I have to call somebody, whom, which number? I dial. You know, this is, this is still, still a problem, you know. So we must offer to American government, if not one number, at least a switching board, you know, in which uh, somebody that can uh, uh, orientate, you know, the, the, uh, the counterpart. Uh, 
this is I think it's easier now because it was it was uh, more difficult a few years ago because uh, I remember that in a few cases uh, contrary to all the American policy in the in all the post-war period in which United States always helped Europe in 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 uh, during the uh, Iraqi war there was a deliberate division between old and new Europe you know and this is this was a sad moment for for me and for the European but the long lasting interest is to be together and so I I I I, I think that on the American side it will be important to help and to push in the direction of more European cohesion. Uh, because I think that this is this is really a common a common interest. And uh, clearly I am not in a hurry. I know that such a enormous change in the concept of state of government of nation that uh, if the European Union we need we need time we we need decades in front of us but we must have clear the idea that this will be really useful for peace for development i repeat it is not easy uh, think only to the language you know uh, uh, when i was in the commission we have only three working language English, French, and Germany, and I, of course, I have never uh, pronounced any word in Italian, my mother language. But when I entered into the Parliament, I was speaking only Italian. But in the Parliament, the European Parliament, there are 22 different languages, and you know, to shape unity with these difficulties is. Uh, is a problem, so it is a great effort. But if we want to build really a new reality in the world, I think that uh, the European example is uh, really uh, the most uh, important example that we can uh, have in front of us and is the best laboratory that uh, is available in our present history. So I think that Europe is a nice museum, but is also an important laboratory for the mankind. Thank you. So we have, we have two mics, and uh, we are going to pick a like, couple of questions and then let the president respond and have other questions more. Let's do three questions, okay? Start, we start this side and one and one, okay? Uh, 
do you think that the fact that Europe is you speak do you think that the fact that Europe is so dependent on Russian energy makes it difficult for the United States to work with Europe on Russia? Yeah. Second. Second question. Uh, first, um, may I uh, respectfully request that with distinguished visitors such as uh, President Prodi, uh, perhaps we sp spend more than 1% of the budget on an improved public address system so that we can hear the speaker better. Uh, it's not difficult to do. This is second, uh, President Prodi, if I may. Um, you have spoken very much about the benefit of enlarging Europe, the benefit of peace and all of these kind of things. Uh, there is a big disconnect, I feel, between all of these excellent goals and what the individuals in Europe think. The individual members of the public are not very interested in Europe and uh, so they see all the, the politicians talking about grand uh, enlargement, increasing the percent of the budget and so on, but they're not so interested in Europe. What can we do ab about that? And does something like what happened today when people who are completely unknown uh, are elected to, uh, appointed to the most senior positions in Europe? Thank you. Europe do to reassure Russia as it expands out into its uh, the former Soviet states through its actions in uh, the European uh, partnership and the the European neighborhood policy what what can Europe do to reassure Russia as it expands out through the uh, European neighborhood policy and the Eastern partnership Okay, thank you. Uh, I, I, I'm not sure to have picked up well the third question. Uh, energy dependency about Russia. Uh, I, I think that uh, with energy, Russia is trying to maximize the Russian power. I am not surprised about that because uh, Russia is using uh, the energy policy as an instrument of power and uh, also as an instrument to keep Ukraine on a sense that is one of the main goals of President Putin. But uh, I am surprised that uh, Europe does not react as should be. Let's say we have uh, a monopoly, 
not a monopoly, but a quasi-monopoly, you know, uh, gas coming from Russia, but the European countries, they don't link together their pipes. And we are not a big monopsonist, a big purchaser, vis-a-vis -vis a big seller. And so at least we are, I, at least I, in part, I blame ourselves, you know, because uh, strength by strength, uh, you, you could react as uh, you uh, could do in a normal situation like that. And uh, so, I, I, I tell you, I find myself uh, to discuss with the Polish leaders, you know, the twins, Kaczynski, when they were uh, president of the Republic and Prime Minister of Poland, they were furious because the Germans and Poland decided to build a pipeline, submarine pipeline, arriving straight to Germany. And, you know, they said, look, Germans and the Russian are making, are making a conspiracy against us, and we discussed about that. So, my opinion was very clear why you don't help us to build a European network of pipelines, to link together all the pipelines. And if the gas arrives to Poland or to Germany, is absolutely indifferent, you know. Is for, but this is a case in which we have still to work for a common policy because we are not a common policy of energy. In spite, we are the biggest purchaser of energy in the world. You know, in this moment, we are dependent from external energy more and more, and we shall depend more and more. So, it's not a problem to ask Putin to be um, merciful or to change policy. Simply, look, uh, you have to sell your gas, we have to buy it. Uh, it's not the seller is not stronger than the buyer, if the buyer is a strong buyer. So this is my opinion regarding energy, uh, Russian energy. The new development of that are that uh, uh, Putin is trying to, I repeat, to uh, bypass Ukraine. And uh, uh, this is a very high cost. I don't know whether with the decrease of demand of energy in Europe because of the crisis and because of uh, the LNG arriving to Europe liquefied uh, natural gas, uh, if this new project of investment will be uh, really viable. I, I, I have some doubt now. I think that even the Russian policy could change because of the change of the market. Uh, second, uh, people are not interested in Europe. Uh, well, 
why to be surprised that there are European media the media are and you know it's, uh, uh, I also did it in my life before going to Brussels uh, to blame Brussels if something goes wrong in your country you know when you make a mistake you say it was Brussels it is Brussels it is Europe that orders us and because you have no European media this game is very easy to play and uh, but I think that uh, I think that uh, uh, this uh, uh, is not easy to countervail if you have not uh, a step by step a change in media you have some uh, more uh, you know some discussion concerning all European policy but not enough the big change will be media and when you will have a political battle in the continent in this moment if you have uh, a political battle uh, between let's say uh, a German socialist and a French Christian democratic area in this case and, uh, understand well that uh, there is a political uh, change so uh, my deep uh, feeling that uh, we have to politicize Europe simply otherwise you have a split between public opinion and uh, and uh, rules the third question I'm sorry but if you repeat it uh, I didn't get it Difficult question, but an easy answer. Uh, uh, it's, it's simple, you know. I, I tell you my experience that uh, when there was uh, the last meeting in which I participated as Prime Minister was on enlargement of NATO to Ukraine and Georgia, and I voted against. I voted against. I said there is no reason to bring NATO uh, in the border of Russia if you have not a policy you know why to uh, why cap uh, the assertiveness of Russia without a strategic idea what to do second as I hinted before I don't see any diverging interest between United States, uh, among United States, Russia and Europe. Russia and the United States, they have common interest to decrease military expenditure. They have budget problem. I don't think that uh, to have a so strong military presence vis-a-vis -vis Russia would be useful. I have found a very wise decision 
the Obama decision to not to install the new missiles in Poland. Uh, the Polish and the Czech have been resented for a couple of weeks, but no more, because they understood, they are understanding that this, uh, there is no strategic purpose to do it. And I repeat, if I am I trying to be rational, I uh, think that there is a common interest uh, also for the complementarity of uh, the uh, European economy and Russian economy and of the political interest of US and Russia that there could be uh, an agreement because I repeat, I don't see uh, I don't see strong reasons to 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 have that. You know, when in a European Russia, European Union Russia summit, you know, uh, uh, they asked me uh, which are the relations between European Union and Russia. And my, my answer was, is like vodka and caviar, completely interdependent. We can fight and so on, but Russia will not live, will not live without selling gas to Europe. The productive structure of Russia is horrible, horrible. And the country has not been able to diversify from from uh, uh, gas and oil. They need Europe in any aspect of their life and we need energy and gas. And uh, so uh, I think that uh, we have to be, to be wise and understand which are the reciprocal interests. Uh, I also do remember uh, that we have also some old responsibilities. I do remember when, when uh, uh, the Soviet Union uh, in the G8 meeting in the I come when Russia collapsed. Uh, so it collapsed and in the Jade meeting in 1991 they came for help and this was denied this was denied you know and the western countries said no and I think that this was a moment it was a great mistake because uh, reopened the Russian nationalism and uh, you know, uh, and then, uh, look, I do remember when, uh, uh, in the years of the humiliation of Russia, uh, the star of Putin started back to, 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 started to come up, you know, that Gorbachev, he called me, he came to visit me, telling, look, uh, a new, a new leader is rising in Russia. His curriculum vitae is not the curriculum that you prefer, but uh, he's the only one 
that can avoid to have a nuclear war to reorganize Russia, uh, not against the Western world, but with compatible interests between Europe and Russia. Uh, maybe he was uh, exaggerating, but uh, I think that uh, uh, the deep meaning of this word are still uh, worthwhile. We must defend our interests, but we must defend them with intelligence and knowing which are the limits of uh, our interests and the Russian interests and which are the deep complementarity. So, not to menace bringing to the Russian borders the alien that is not needed to go till there and uh, uh, being strong vis-a-vis -vis the Russian energy uh, arm twisting. You know, this is what we have to do. And this is the reason why I think that uh, uh, an agreement will be possible and not so difficult. Other two questions and then we'll close. Thank you. President Prodi, you pointed out um, the example of the euro, the uh, creation of the euro uh, as an example of an innovation. Can you hear me? Okay. Yes. Uh, as an example of an innovation that supports your idea of uh, Europe as a laboratory. But how do you uh, respond to the criticism of many Italians, for example, who lament that since the advent of the euro, their buying power has been diminished and what they used to be able to buy for a thousand euro, for instance, a thousand lira, they cannot buy for uh, the, same, the same amount of goods for one euro. Uh, no, if you, the question is correlated to the, uh, let's say, the ups and downs of the currencies. Uh, look, uh, the world now is still dominated by the fluctuation of the dollar, you know, and the euro comes as a consequence, you know, because there is not... Uh, a world market so deep and so wide for the euro as you have for the dollars, you know. So uh, uh, the result has been uh, an enormous increase uh, in the in the value of the euro vis-a-vis -vis the dollar, and I think that uh, we arrive to a critical point now. 1.50 is uh, putting uh, Europe in deep strain, European industry and European export in deep strain. But, you know, I am not uh, an expert in uh, uh, rate of exchange forecasts, but uh, there are no signal of a change of this trend. And uh, this is one of the most dangerous uh, perspective that we have in front of us for the future. 
because uh, if we go on in the uh, say increase of the euro vis-a-vis -vis the dollar we could have some some deep crisis and it's not easy to have uh, let's say uh, agreement in the monetary front also for the reason that I have tried to express tonight that there is not a common policy in Europe there is only monetary policy so the complex of running uh, the relation between the currencies is very very difficult but personally I think that we have already arrived to the limit beyond which uh, the, uh, there will be negative effect in both sides of the Atlantic. 1.50, it put under strain uh, all the European, all the European economy. Thank you for speaking with us, uh, Prime Minister Prodi. I have a um, more historical question. I was wondering, in 1978, when um, Aldo Moro was hostage, you gave information as to his whereabouts and claimed to have received it from spirits via an Ouija board. Do you still stand by this explanation today? Uh, uh, I really hear. I, I, it's difficult to listen for me. Can you can you come here? Okay. Excuse me. <laughs> This is this is what I've this is what I've read and correct me if I'm wrong. Come, come here, come here, please. It's a problem of of uh, voice. Tell me. Yes. Honored to meet you, sir. My question was, in 1978, and this is, this is what I have read, I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, but 1978, when you, gave, uh, when you and the faculty at Bologna gave information as to the whereabouts of Aldo Moro, you claimed that it came from a seance. Do you still stand by this story today? Yes. Thank you, sir. <laughs> There are other questions? Sorry, sorry. We are recorded, so it's better to use microphone. Thank you. Professor Prady, you're, uh, you've been uh, uh, instrumental in enlarging Europe, uh, and uh, I understand what you said, that it was a narrow window. I presume that you meant... Uh, that uh, uh, we wanted to grab, uh, we wanted to grab uh, uh, Romania, Bulgaria before Russia would grab. But uh, you lamented the fact that uh, now there are many different nationalities, there are many, many languages, many so different. Uh, you gave me the impression that uh, uh, Europe, you described Europe not as a union, but as a confederation. And uh, as you know here, the uh, United States knows very well what uh, was the difference between a confederation and a union. Uh, just uh, to summarize everything, do you believe that it's going to be a union, especially now that, uh, uh, you know, it cannot be just an experimental labor laboratory. China is coming up too strong. Uh, there is no time to do experiments. 
Can Europe become a union quick or not? No, quick. Uh, I, I, I have been clear when I told in the end of my speech that we shall need decades to become a union. You know, it's a slow process. But I'm sure just because what you told in your question, that because of the challenge coming from China that will come from India, we shall be pushed to stick together. Uh, an example that I do always is this. I, I am an Italian, you know, and uh, in the Renaissance period, in the Renaissance period, the Italian states were really leading in, you know, in many fields, in finance, in military organization, in art, philosophy, uh, thing to Venice, thing to Milan, to Rome. Uh, they were the first globalization, that was the discovery of America. And uh, the Italian state did not stick together and Italy disappeared from the world map. I think that the European states are precisely in the same situation in this second globalization. Germany, France, UK, even if they are powerful states, they are, you know, weakened, they are weak. These are the future China, India, United States. And so, I am convinced that this challenge will push the Union, uh, unless we prefer to disappear, because the Italian case was clear. Uh, it's uh, in, in a couple of generations, the, 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 the overpowerful Italian state were simply a field of battle for the armies of the big national states. And this is, I think that this is precisely the destiny of Europe if we will not be united. Now I have been honest to tell you which are the difficulties, which, uh, which are the nationalistic uh, uh, vices still, still uh, getting around, and this is what. Uh, this is why we shall need uh, decades to, to make the union. Okay. On last question. Last question. Let's see. Okay. Last. Because we really have to close. <laughs> I think you said nicely that uh, it's a great experiment and I think it's a great experiment for this century to deserve for a Nobel Prize. Having said that, uh, different regions in the world, they are in fact copying the European Union model like uh, African Union and there is a talk about Asian, South Asian Union. So I think there is a need to propagate this a great uh, experiment to other countries so that the people can come closer and they can have a more interdependency. Yes, uh, I, 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 this is a great question, you know, because uh, I think that first of all, 
Africa needs a union. You know, the situation in Africa is very clear. If we have not multilateral in Africa, Africa is lost. Simple. There is no African country with a dimension big enough to have an internal market, to have, uh, let's say, some sort of sufficient organization. And so for Africa, I'm absolutely clear, Asia is different. Asia is, um, is the continent in which you have um, big countries with a dimension that, uh, you know, for a national country is a dimension that is uh, fitted for a world uh, uh, of a world role, and so it's uh, is a different case in Asia. What I think, uh, not uh, uh, the possibility of having something similar to the European Union, but uh, certainly you could expect. Uh, evolution that uh, will help to change, uh, will, will make a change in the world structure. Let's say if there is an approach between Japan and China with a new Japanese government, with an exchange of technology and uh, more cooperation, this will give you already another change in the world uh, political dimension you know it's uh, i do expect this type of uh, of change not uh, uh, not a copy of uh, the european experiment it's too different the, the the asian reality for africa i repeat if there is no uh, something similar the continent is lost. The continent is lost. You know, Africa can't go on in this situation, and uh, uh, the European countries have not helped Africa to have this sense of the union. You know, each country traditionally keeps its relation with the African countries that were traditionally linked. You know, and uh, this is uh, something that works against. Uh, the development and the peaceful, uh, the economic development and the peaceful development of Africa. Thank you so much. Thank you.